Well, thank you for being here this morning. I invite you to turn, please, to 1 Peter chapter 2. Our study of 1 Peter, once again, uh, brings us to chapter 2 and the passage that was read as our scripture reading this morning, uh, chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. And in these verses, Peter is communicating the believer's uh, position in Christ. We saw that last time. And this position is true for everyone who has accepted Christ and believes in him as their Savior and Lord. We saw last time that he's giving us face uh, six basic facts regarding our position or our standing before God, how God views believers. Uh, the church is, verse 9, a chosen race. Uh, verse 9, a royal priesthood. Verse 9, a holy nation. Verse 9, a people belonging to God, or better translated, his own uh, possession. But Peter also mentions in verse 10 uh, two other uh, positions that the believer has. If you look with me at verse 10, you will note he says, Once you were not a people, but now you are, here it is, the people of God. And the believer in Jesus Christ is identified with the God of the Bible. You'll note that in, in verse 10, he doesn't start there with that position that we now occupy, having exercised faith in Christ. He says, you once were not a people. This was before Christ. And the condition of every human prior to faith in Christ is that of being lost. Jesus said he came into this world to seek and to save that which was lost. Humanity is lost. And in that, humanity is also without hope. Collectively, humanity can do its best to try and remedy and fix everything that appears to be wrong in this world. But it's a futile uh, attempt. In fact, uh, Ephesians tells us that apart from Christ, not only are people without hope, but they're without God in this world. And therefore, they're not a people. They're really not a people. Uh, but, but notice, being the people of God, consider this according to what the New Testament tells us. The church is comprised of believers from every people group, every ethnic background, every social status, every language, and every nation. In fact, one day the worship around the throne will look like the people of God whom he has redeemed through Jesus Christ. Because notice what John records in Revelation chapter 9, or excuse me, 5 and verse 9. Chapter 5 and verse 9. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God, people for God, 
from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you've made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God that they will reign upon uh, the earth. And in this present world, God has called his people, the people of God, the church, to be a witness for Jesus Christ as the gospel goes out and people hear the good news of salvation uh, through Jesus Christ. How is this uh, salvation accomplished? It's accomplished by Christ's death on the cross as he shed his blood for the sin of the world. And the people of God then are Christians who have come to God through faith in Jesus Christ by the way of the cross. So that is the fifth uh, position that he says we are in before God as believers. We are the people of God. And then lastly he mentions uh, this sixth one. And it's in that same verse 10. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Before Christ, you were without mercy. But now that you are in Christ, you are recipients of God's mercy. You're, you're recipients of God's mercy, if you would. Mercy is God withholding punishment that is due to sinners. And God shows mercy to the world through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ by providing forgiveness and the only way of salvation and eternal life. And it's offered to all who will acknowledge Him and receive Him by faith. The Apostle Paul back in Romans chapter 11 says these words, Romans chapter 11 and he's talking about the nation of Israel that has been blinded in part and hasn't responded positively to the gospel. Even though they were anticipating a Messiah, even though they were, were, were foretold that there would be a Savior of the world, they've rejected that Messiah. And so Paul says here concerning the, the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, as far as the gospel is concerned, verse 28, they are enemies of on your account. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. You see, God made promises and covenants that he made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and to the nation of Israel that he intends to fully keep and fulfill. And that's why Paul can say in verse 29, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. They're without repentance. And then notice this, he brings it into his, his reader's experience and, and, and relationship with God through Christ. Just, at, just as you who were at one time disobedient to God, now you have received mercy as a result of their disobedience. You see, the result of the nation of Israel for a time and a season rejecting Messiah resulted in the gospel going to the ends of the earth. That was always part of God's plan to get the gospel out. And notice verse 31 says, So they too now have become disobedient in order that they too now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. See, God is a merciful God. 
And verse 32 declares, For God has bound all men over to disobedience. That's the bad news, but here's the good news. So that you may have, he may have mercy on all. God, God is abundant in mercy, and he extends mercy to all, according to verse 32. In fact, in the Old Testament, the character of God's mercy is brought out by the prophet Micah in chapter 7, verses 18 and 19. Listen to these verses. Referring to God, the prophet declares, Who is a God like you who pardons sins and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but you delight to show mercy. You will have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl our iniquities into the depths of the sea. And the prophet is looking forward to a time in which God will once again extend mercy to his Jewish nation, the people of Israel, and bring them into a place of restoration and forgiveness and acceptance before him. But in the gospel, you too receive mercy from God. He withholds the judgment that is due to you and to me. But that judgment we will never face because it was borne by Christ on the cross. He died for our sins. And just like the prophet of old saying that you take our sins and you cast them into the depths of the sea, they're never to be brought up against you again. And why? Because of the mercy of God towards you and me in Jesus Christ. There's an interesting account that Jesus spoke of in Luke's Gospel, chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. In that context, uh, Jesus tells a story, a parable uh, of a publican, a tax collector, uh, and a Pharisee. And the two of them went up to the temple to pray. Uh, and the Pharisee in his prayer says, I thank you, God, that I'm not like other people. You know, swindlers, you know, immoral and he goes on this whole litany of how good he is before God. And it says that the tax collector who had a reputation for being corrupt, and maybe this man was in his experience and in his work, because that was allowable, if you would, though it was unacceptable. It says that he wouldn't even raise his, his eyes towards heaven, but kept his head bowed and, and said in his prayer, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Have you come to that place in your life, understanding your need for a Savior in Jesus Christ? Have you called out to Him for mercy, as did that tax collector who knew he was sinful before God, even if he was the most honest tax collector that ever existed in the human race. He still knew that before a holy God, he fell short. And yet he called out to God for mercy. And my friends, if you want mercy from God, he offers it to you in Jesus Christ. And when you receive him by faith, you receive the mercy of God. The penalty of your sins has been borne by Christ on the cross. And amazingly, Lamentations 3.22-26 tell us that the mercies of God never fail. They never run out. They're new every morning. So if you need mercy this morning from God, God does, never says to you or to me, well, you've used your allotment up for the month. You're going to have to wait. 
No, his mercies are new every morning towards you and towards me where he withholds because of what Christ has done for us the judgment and the penalty that is due to each one of us. So let me say to you, uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, do you realize your God-given position in Christ? That you are loved, you are valued, you are purchased to be the Lord's both now and forevermore. I encourage you to embrace your position in Christ in these six ways that Peter in his letter is saying to us that we're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, the people of God, and people who are recipients of His mercy. If you don't fully understand that, I would encourage you to go back and study those terms again in the con greater context of Scripture and see what God has called you to in Jesus Christ by virtue of your union with Him by faith. This is your position before God, church. This is how God views you. But you see, God gives His church these privileged positions in Christ for a purpose. It's not only that we can rest in that and realize that and, and, and be in awe of that, that he would call us to such a high and holy privileged position, but he, ha he does that for a purpose. And notice what Peter says here. Go back to verse 9. I purposely went through those positions first. Now we're going to look at the purpose that God has for His church who are all these things in His sight. You're a people belonging to God, says Peter, verse 9, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. The first thing that, that God wants you to do out of your position in Christ is to proclaim my translation says declare. It's, it's better understood as proclaim. It's exangelio if you want to know the Greek word. It means to proclaim, to tell out, to publish completely, to proclaim ab abroad, to advertise is one way to understand that. So as I thought about that, that particular term, to advertise... I thought to myself, what is my life advertising about what it means to be a Christian, a Christ follower? What is your life advertising? If your life was a billboard, if you would, or a digital sign these days, showing the world what a Christian is like, what, what would your life be advertising concerning Jesus Christ? And notice he says here, God wants you to proclaim what? The praises of Him, the excellencies, the virtues, the renowned, the goodness of God. And, and how is that seen? Well, in many ways, the, the mighty deeds of God that are seen in the Old Testament. The, the, the record of Scripture where we see a mighty God who does mighty things on behalf of His people whom He has redeemed. But more so in your life, because notice He says here, that you proclaim the praises, you declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness. Do you realize that prior to faith in Jesus Christ, individuals are in darkness, spiritually dark, 
and dead in their trespasses and sin, not understanding anything of the things of God, not understanding their true need before a holy and a righteous God. But God worked in you and in me to bring you to a place of understanding your need for Jesus by the proclamation of the gospel. Because in that gospel, we see our need we see our sin, we see our fallenness, but we also see God's solution, God's answer, God's remedy, and that is the person and work of Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect, sinless, holy life, and then willingly, and in submission to the Father, offered up that life in place of sinners, in place of you and me, and He died as a substitute and as a sacrifice for us. That on the basis of his death, burial, and resurrection, you and I might be forgiven of God and given new and everlasting life. That's good news. And, and at one time, we were all in darkness. We didn't understand that. Now, I hearken back quite a, a way in this, but I remember in middle school, a friend of mine, Anthony Randolph, I may have mentioned him before, used to witness to me at, at, at lunchtime. And Anthony used to say, you need to get saved. You need to be born again. And to this very day, I could still remember one of my responses to him. What does it mean to be born again? I, I was a part of the church. I, I grew up in the church. I was going to serve God in the church. And I didn't understand the basics. Like Nicodemus of old. How can a man be born when he's old? He can't, he can't be born a second time through his mother's womb, can he? I was in spiritual darkness. Ah, but in time by God in his mercy and in his grace to me brought me along. Showed me my need for Christ. And at 14 years of age, by God's grace, he saved me through Jesus Christ. Like, like the man born blind that we just finished in our Sunday school class in our study of that passage in John 9. I once was blind, but now I see. And, and you and I are part of the purpose God saves us is so that we are proclaimers. We're advertisers for the good news of the gospel that we proclaim the excellencies, the virtues of God, the wonders of God, the noble deeds of God in saving us and He could save anyone. No one is beyond the reach of the grace of God in Jesus Christ, top side of this earth. No one. No matter how sinful, no matter how much in bondage to sin, no matter how evil, God is mighty to save. So those that you pray for, those that you witness to, those that you desire to see come to faith in Jesus Christ and be saved and be part of the kingdom of God and of the church of God, there's hope. And that hope comes through Jesus Christ. So you're to proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all, says John in his first letter. 
If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. When you're in the light of who God is, you see yourself as you really are. But good news is the blood of Christ has taken care of the sinfulness of your heart and your soul before him. And you and I are seen by God to be clothed with the very righteousness of Christ in his sight. What an amazing thing God has done for us. And we're to proclaim that. We're to publish that. We're to advertise that. We heard the testimony here by that video of, of children sometimes that they struggle with the things we as adults do to, to be straightforward and honest about what we believe in Christ. My friends, ask God for that boldness to not be ashamed. To just simply but yet confidently proclaim what God has done for you in Christ. In fact, uh, I, I don't have the, 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 all the words and I don't have the signs, but you know, there's a little ch uh, uh, Sunday school song. Stop and let me tell you what the Lord has done for me. And there used to be a stop sign, you know, that you would hold up and teach the children that song, you know. And then on the other side was go, go and tell the world something. I don't know the words to it. You probably know it. That's why I said I forgot the words to it. But you should go and tell. You're to go and proclaim. And that's one of the reasons why God has given you the positions he has in Christ. That you proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. God wants it to be in our lives, in my life and in yours, that it, it, it comes to a place where it's automatic. That it's habitual. That it's spontaneous. That if you would, it's almost a, a, a reflex. Though, though it's not, it's not uh, just said. I could remember early as a believer, um, my brother-in-law was part of a uh, softball team that the church had. And um, I, I'm not being a critic of the individual. This wasn't my brother-in-law, but somebody was there. Everything was, praise God. Praise God, that was a good shot. Oh, praise God, that was a good shot. Oh, oh, praise God, that was a good... You know, it's kind of like, it kind of loses its significance if it just becomes a rote thing that you say. I'm praising God because I'm saved. I'm praising God because He could save you by His mercy and His grace. So, so it, it, it's, it, it becomes automatic. Remember that on the, the, the day of Pentecost when the Spirit of God came upon the church... They, they spoke with other tongues. The people heard them speaking in all those languages. And you know what they were doing? They were declaring the wonderful works of God. And one of the evidences that the Spirit of God is truly at work in our lives is that He has control of our tongues, our mouths, and what we say. And it's really prompted by the Spirit of God that we give Him praise when we're yielded to Him. But you know, it, it, it is that through the Spirit's work in us, in, in, in sort of that habitual sense, that spontaneous sense, but it also has to be intentional on my part and yours. Do you remember in Acts chapter 20, uh, excuse me, uh, Acts chapter 16, verse 25, Paul and Silas were in prison. They had just been beaten for proclaiming the gospel and they were thrown into the prison. And probably with their backs bleeding, their, 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 their bodies aching, it says at midnight they were singing praises to God. The fellow, rest of the prisoners were listening to them. 
They could have stayed in that prison and licked their wounds and grumbled and griped. What were they doing? They were praising God. It was intentional. They, they made a purpose of, I'm going to praise God regardless of the circumstance. And you and I are called to that, to proclaim the wonders, the excellencies, the noble things of God who's called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. So we're to proclaim. But notice that Peter continues on in, in verse 11 where he says, Dear friends, and that's a lot of times translated beloved. We're beloved because we're in Christ. We're in the beloved. He says, Beloved, dear friends, I urge you. This is a strong exhortation that he's giving to the people of God, the church, those who have these privileged positions by virtue of being in Christ. I urge you as aliens and strangers. Interesting those two words he uses to describe the believer. Aliens are, are foreigners. Uh, by, by definition it means those whose home is in another country and the country that they're currently in, uh, they're not a citizen of that. And that's how we're to view our earthly life, that, that, that while we are here, this life is temporary. This assignment here on earth is just for a brief time. If you're in Christ, your true home is in heaven. And he says, I, I urge you as aliens, as foreigners, and strangers. That word has a, a similar meaning, but a little bit different. It means a temporary visitor passing through a foreign land. The King James says that... that we're pilgrims. We're pilgrims. And, and notice this. It's in relationship to this world. As aliens and strangers in this world, this is what you're to do. Not only are you to proclaim the greatness of God and the gospel, but secondly, you're to abstain. To abstain uh, means, here's some English synonyms, to forego, to quit, to refrain from to renounce, to shun, to avoid, to decline, to refuse, to do without, to give up. And it's interesting because that exhortation is in a present tense word which means continually do this, to abstain. It's, it's used in Acts chapter 15 and verse 29 for, from the ruling of the Jerusalem Council, you'll recall. And when they sent out a letter of what Gentile believers were expected as Christ followers, they didn't say you've got to follow the Old Testament law and do all these different things, but we encourage them to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, which means you don't eat it. You, you also abstain from, from blood and things that were strangled. And certainly you abstain from sexual immorality. It, they said if they did these things and abstained from these things that were widely accepted in the normal practice of the day, they'll do well. And notice what Peter says here. That we are to abstain from sexual, for, excuse me, from sinful desires which war against your soul. One translation says the passions of your soul. And when he talks about sinful desires here, 
He's talking about that which is prompted by the old sin nature. Sometimes translated fleshly lusts. But see, a lot of times when we hear that, that term, we tend to immediately think uh, of sexual immorality. It's certainly included in that, but it's broader than just uh, sexually immoral things. But it would include any natural God-given desire that fails to be governed and controlled by me through the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, sin perverts human desires. And our old nature, that's what we tend uh, to seek after. In fact, Jesus said here in uh, Mark's Gospel, chapter 7, Turn back to Mark for a moment. Chapter 7. Jesus says this is what is really in the human heart and is true of the human nature. He says, verse 20, what comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. See, they thought by eating certain foods that their, 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 their spiritual life would be contaminated or somehow uh, bring about sin. Jesus says, no, it's none of that. It's not what you eat. It's not what you consume. He says here, verse 21, for from within, out of men's hearts, out of the individual heart, after, out of your heart and mine, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All of these are evil and come from inside and make a man, make a woman unclean before God. Paul goes on to further add to that list in Galatians chapter 5 when he says, out of the sinful nature, out of the old man, Galatians 5.19, the acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, fractions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. Well, that sounds like our culture today almost, doesn't it? And notice this. He gives a warning, it, it, Paul does, in this list. And he says, I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this, that this, this is their ongoing lifestyle, the way that they, they conduct themselves in life, will not inherit the kingdom of God. So you say to yourself, well, wait a minute, but why does Peter say that to believers. After all, aren't we saved? Don't we have a new nature? Yes, we do. But it's also true that we still have a sin nature. That's why Paul says in that same Galatians passage, 
verse 16, so I say live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. See, God has given you and me as a blessing of the gospel, the capacity through Jesus Christ and the indwelling Holy Spirit to overcome sin and to say no to sin. We have the ability to be set free and we are free in Christ. Jesus said, whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And even if there's an area of your life where you struggle and you fail and you fall short, there's still mercy and grace from God to continue. And that's the struggle of sanctification in our lives, of our becoming holy. Of we continually come back to Christ who is the source, who is the reality of new and everlasting and holy life before him. That's why Paul could say in verse 25 of Galatians 5, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. And you know where my life messes up? When I get out of step with the Spirit of God. And I need to come back in repentance and faith and trust Christ to cleanse me and to one get, once again get my feet back on the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. So he says here, you're to abstain with from these sinful desires. Notice this, which wage war against your soul. Now you and I might read that phrase and think that he's talking about that it just affects our soul, our immaterial part. But the, the, the way that he's using that term soul means the entirety of your being. It's the whole person. It's the whole you. We're in a spiritual battle. Ephesians chapter 6. And when I fail to fight and sin finds home in me, it makes me weak and ineffective in my witness for Christ and in my walk with God. But the good news is you and I don't need to succumb to the flesh. All believers through, through Jesus Christ have the power and the authority to say no to sin and to, and to temptation. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10 reminds us, Be strong and in the Lord and in His mighty power. And then he goes on to exhort us to take up the full armor of God that we could stand firm in the midst of this battle. And you know, how I live is just as important as what I say. And God's purpose for you and for me as believers is not only to proclaim and to abstain, but one last thing in this text, to display. To display. Look, look with me at verse 12. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. We're to display the fact that the gospel of Jesus Christ and his saving work transforms our lives. One translation says, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Your conduct honorable to live properly, to have good conduct. And notice, what, what's the purpose behind that? Not only talking about what God does when He saves us, but showing His work in and through your daily life, your walk. Wayne Grudem in his commentary on 1 Peter says, this is the day-to-day -day pattern of your life that you display that you have that relationship with God through Jesus Christ. 
And, and why would we do that? Why would we be concerned about that? Because we, we hear the phrase, we not only are to talk the talk, but what? Walk the walk. And notice this. It says here, so that though they accuse you of doing wrong. So they accuse you of doing wrong. What were some of the things in Peter's day that the Christians were accused of? And, and these may not be the same things we're accused of today, but here's what they were struggling with. They were being slandered in these ways. They were considered cannibals because they consumed the body and blood of the Lord in communion. They were also accused of immorality and incest because they had love feasts as a, as a church. Maybe part of that is because they called each other's brother and sister. And then to think that they're married? What else would an unbeliever maybe conclude in that context? They were also accused of tampering with family relationships because sometimes families were broken up because they believed the gospel. Some were uh, accused of, of turning their slaves against the masters that they had in that day. Some, they accused Christians of hatred of mankind because they spoke of the world and the church as being diametrically opposed to one another. And then they also accused Christians uh, of disloyalty to the government. In this context, Barclay says, would be Rome because they have another king whom they worship and they're obedient to. Now today, uh, you and I may not be accused of those specific things, but don't we hear that Christians are haters and hypocrites? That the church is corrupt? After all, look at the scandals that have been part of every church meaning denomination-wise, if you would. Or the fact that the church has become materialistic and all I care about is the offering. Listening to some preachers, you'd think that that's all that the Christian life is about, is materialism. In fact, it's sad that a survey of you at the United States uh, and the evangelical church in the United States has found that people who claim to be followers of Christ are virtually no different than the lost. And I would say to you that what Peter is saying to you and me is prove them wrong. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds. Didn't Jesus say in Matthew 5, 13 through 16, that his followers are to be salt and to be light? You know what salt does? It makes you thirsty. You, should, you and I should be living in such a way as followers of Christ under the power of the Holy Spirit that it, that it, that it, it causes a thirst in others to say, what's different about you? We should be living, it, reflecting the light of Christ 
who though he did expose sin by being the light of the world and showing the wrong that exists in the world and in individuals, also showed the light of the gospel where people can be saved and made right with God. And you know, it could be something uh, as simple as a cup of cold water given in Jesus' name. Permit me uh, uh, to highlight for us this uh, from the, uh, the Alliance Life dated July and August of 2023. This is about things that are happening in Ukraine. The author of this article says, while God has been directly answering the prayers of his children with life-saving miracles, he's also been mightily using Alliance workers, partners, and Alliance-affiliated churches to share his love with people in crisis. Partner churches in Ukraine have been able to turn church buildings into refugee centers, pass out tons of food every month, rebuild homes and churches, and build a center for distributing water, medicine, winter coats, sleeping bags, generators, and food to hundreds of people. This article goes on and says, when one city was completely without water, a church retrofitted their van to become a water wagon with a huge tank. They drove out of the city, filled up the tank, and drove back into the city, and people came with buckets to get water. The pastor told everyone about Jesus, the living water, as they waited in line. The outreach activities of these churches and workers have touched the lives of roughly 500 to 1,000 people every month. Now, many know that God is the one who is providing for their every need. And then it goes on to say, in the eastern region of Ukraine, many people have been evacuated due to the conflict. Suddenly, the churches were losing their numbers, but in their places were non-believers hungry for comfort and for peace from God. Now, on any given Sunday, 90% of the congregation in these churches are unbelievers and new followers of Christ. In the last half of 2022, Alliance workers were able to assist partner churches in Ukraine in planting five new Alliance-affiliated churches. One of these church plants started in November of 2022, and by February of 2023, they had already run out of room in their building. And why so? Because the people of God did good in Jesus' name. And the result is that Peter says here, and they will glorify God on the day he visits. Now, the phrase on the day he visits or his visitation has two ideas in Scripture. The first being that the, when God visits, he visits for judgment. And that's seen in the Old Testament. Isaiah 10 verses 1 through 3 is but one example. But it's also secondary understood that when God visits, that, that when he visits, he w visits to bless. 
to provide mercy and grace to those who are in need. And I would suggest to you that what is being suggested here is that when they see your good deeds, when they see that you're living the Christian life and they're, they're, they're moved by that, they're compelled by that, they end up realizing that God is indeed merciful and good and gracious and they come to believe and He visits them with salvation. And thus they praise Him as well. And isn't that what God's desire is for this world? That He turns rebels into worshipers through salvation in Jesus Christ? So let me ask you this morning, how is your talk and your walk as a Christian? Do others hear the greatness of God and of the Savior Jesus Christ from your life? What about your daily life? Is your behavior and your actions consistent with the teaching of Scripture so that they have no cause to accuse you before God or others of your hypocrisy or inconsistency? You know, Christ came to save us, each one of us, and to make Him and to shape us to be more conformed to His image. This requires that you and I, by faith, allow Him to work on you and work through you by continually seeking Him day by day. Let me encourage you, brothers and sisters in Christ, to prove the unbelieving and skeptical world that Jesus, in fact, is Savior and Lord. And may it be seen through your life and mine. Shall we pray? Lord, you have placed such a high and holy calling on your people. And when I come to realize the commands of Scripture and the expectations you place upon me and upon your church and your people, it drives me all the more to Christ and realize how I need you. Lord, how we need you. Thank you that through Jesus Christ there is forgiveness of sin for when we fall short. Thank you for Jesus and his sanctifying presence in our lives in that through his work it, on us and in us he makes us to be more like himself. And thank you Father for the privilege of serving you as representatives of Christ and the gospel. May it be so, Lord, that each of us live the gospel daily with the strength that you supply. And may all the glory go to you, O God. Please make it so in me and in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.